The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello everyone and welcome to Episode 1, Season 3 of the David Cassidy Connections podcast. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, John Provost. John was at high school with David and is best known for his role as Timmy Martin in the legendary television series, Lassie. He got his first break at the age of two, and we talk about the impact of being a child star. John had been cast in movies alongside Grace Kelly, Jane Wyman, Bing Crosby and Clint Eastwood before he started a seven-year stint on Lassie. David contributed to John's autobiography, Timmy's In the Well, and John recalls reaching out to David when he could see he was struggling with his health. He also shares a powerful explanation of his own battle with alcohol addiction. But as always, we start at the beginning. But the only reason you came into the business, <laughs> it's quite an amusing story, is because your your mother wanted, yeah. wanted to meet Jane Wyman. You got mom, mom was very poor, grew up in a little farming town in Texas, got her first pair of new, brand new shoes when she was 12 years old, everything, all, all hand-me-downs. But growing up, you know, her idol was Jane Wyman. And then she was a seamstress and met my father in Hollywood and she moved to Hollywood. My father was from Alabama and graduated an aeronautical engineer. Well, Southern California was where they were building airplanes. So he went there. They met in Hollywood, got married in 1940. Mom was, you know, making dresses. And then she was a mother. And then she became a housewife. And dad was making airplanes. And then one day, mom reads in the LA Times that Warner Brothers is looking for a two to three year old blonde boy to be in this movie with Jane Wyman. And we didn't even live in Hollywood. We lived in Pasadena and mom, dad comes home from work and she goes, look, I'm going to take John to this studio and I'm going to get Jane Wyman's autograph. Dad says, you're out of your mind. You know, and mom says, oh, let me go. And so mom takes me. There's 200, over 200 little boys and some little girls whose moms had cut their hair. And I ended up getting the job. <laughs> and then, you know, so... I'm a very, very big believer in being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, it all. And then, you know, that led to another movie. My second movie was Country Girl with Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly and then a couple of others. And then I had a contract with RKO for five movies. So I did 10 movies <clears throat> and some early live television before I started Lassie when I was seven. So how uh, do you, when you're two years old how do you no, learn no, your no. lines you can't read and then throw this into the mix i'm dyslexic the other day we're going something my wife and i were driving and i said oh look there's one it's only um 69 and she just started laughing she goes john it's 96 dollars." i transpose stuff all i still do it all the time so i couldn't even i couldn't read <clears throat> so my mother would read me my lines the night before and i'd memorize until I got to uh, where I could read. I mean, I can read, you know, obviously, and I can write, but I have to, my write, my spelling, that's all messed up. So they, it, it was so bad. Now, here's something that you, I can take to the grave. Life magazine, which is no longer around, but it was a huge, big publication here in the States. When I first started Lassie, they did a full article on me with photos and everything. John Provost 
Timmy, the new star on the Lassie show, cannot read or spell. He has a mental block. Well, they didn't know what dyslexia was. Well, no. So my parents or the studio found this doctor. His name was Dr. Wolf. I believe he was from Sweden. And he was turned years later, he was arrested he, for quackery. He lost his medical license, or he didn't have a medical license. He was a quack. He was fake. Right. So he had me listening to all these weird noises and sounds to clear my mental block, you know? So I had to go through that kind of crazy stuff, though. So that's how I learned my lines until I could, until I could read when I got older. But even when I was doing Lassie for the first couple of years, my mother would read me. I would memorize 10 to 12 pages of dialogue every night. And then my schoolwork, you know, homework and stuff like that. Mom was with me 99% of the time. If she wasn't there, she had hired, um, her name was Mrs. Olson, this little old lady that would watch me. But they always had a social worker and a school teacher on the set who were supposed to watch. But Red Weatherwax, the owner of Lassie, he was very protective of his dog. I did not know my grandfathers. They were both gone. Rudd became my surrogate grandfather and also my protector. And he would watch over me like he watched over his dogs. And so that was great. They never really got away with much stuff on the Lassie show. We did a few things, but... Did you do your own stunts at that age? When I was young, they wouldn't let me. But when I got older, I wanted to. I, and I... I which you did to make just have fun, you know. Towards the end of the series, we did a five-parter in color. It was the only thing we did in color. And it was released as a movie uh, after the series ended called Lassie's Great Adventure. Well, there was a scene where Lassie and I were on a, a raft and it went down the rapids and broke up. Lassie and I were in the water and got separated. Well, they couldn't rehearse it and they couldn't use doubles. They couldn't use a double Lassie and they couldn't use a, my double because they had to see our faces. And they didn't have computers back then. So we couldn't rehearse it. Did this. We were doing the scene. Raft broke up. Everything was great. Except when I, I got, it was rapids. And I got sucked under. And I hit my chest on a boulder. And when I came up, I had all the air knocked out of me. And when I came up, I was gasping. And <clears throat> the director, well, I was doing what I was supposed to. They thought I was acting, but I wasn't. I was drowning. They had two men. And it was... This was wintertime in the Sierras, freezing. The water was freezing, snow. And they had two men in wetsuits, diver suits, to jump in and save Lassie. But for me, all they had was a rope across the river that I was supposed to grab. Well, I went under the rope. I was going down the river. And uh, my, quote, stuntman jumped in and saved me. And afterwards, we found out that the director at the end of the day had called, his name was Whitey, uh, Whitey Hughes, called Whitey over and said, here, gave him a $100 bill for saving the star. Well, back then, that $100 bill was like $1,000 today or more. But now you would, they would never do anything like that today. Your, that your mom couldn't have been too pleased. They, they all thought it was okay at the time, afterwards. But at the time, oh, you did a great job. No, I didn't. I almost died. People probably don't realize, and perhaps you can explain, that it was your decision to leave Lassie after seven years. Yeah. We had a seven-year contract, and there was a three-year option for a total of 10. But the option was ours. Seven years was coming to an end, and um, they wanted to go for three more, and my 
and I'm 14. I'm just turned 14. You know, I'm going through puberty and, you know, I'm looking at girls and everybody. And then, like you said earlier, David and I looked so much younger than we were. So I was tired of being Timmy. So my parents said, what do you want to do? And they were, they let me make that decision. So I, yeah, I wrote my pink slip on laughing and that was that. It was right for me at the time. No regrets. It's, it's very much like, you know, there was David signed up and from being a 19-year-old. Right. By the time he's 23, 24 and been touring the world, mm-hmm. I mean, you change. You evolve. Sure. Between 7, sure. 14, 21, 28, every seven years, mm-hmm. you cycle in, in your life. They surely couldn't have expected you to still play a cute little blonde. Yeah, well, the, it was the same thing as... Um, when I started the show, I took over. Tommy Reddick had been on the show for three years. It was the same thing. He outgrew. He was. He wanted to move on to do mm. something else. Though it's just progression. Are you surprised at the the depth of emotion that people still have for Lassie? Well, for one thing, you know, we never had any idea that the show would still be on today. It's on in over fifty countries in reruns. It's on. A dozen different networks here in reruns. We did. Who knew? We didn't have a clue. And truthfully, I never thought, you know, I would still be signing autographs, Timmy from Lassie. You know, seriously, we we didn't we didn't know. We didn't know. If you got children and grandchildren who now sit as as we would have done, oh, yeah. kids and cry at the end. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's always a good cry. <laughs> you know, I and I can remember. My kids, you know, they're 38 and 36 now. And but when they were like in in kindergarten, you know, or in first grade, daddy, you know, my teacher, Mrs. Brooks, wants an autograph. Do you have one of those? You know, (laughs) or or they would say, Why? You know, (laughs) but they love it. They they now they get a real kick out of it. Oh, your dad was Timmy on Lassie. Yeah, yeah. But nobody came up to me and said they hated Lassie. Well, when we were current in the U.S., when we were filming, we were in um, 120, I think it was 127 or 128 countries. My parents had nothing to do with Hollywood. They were the furthest from Hollywood. You know, and, and over the years, you know, David and I, we had seen each other at different events or you know, uh, uh, the Hollywood Lane Parade at Christmas time, things like that. But, you know, we really didn't get to become friends and, and really know each other until high school. And that was really it. And unlike David, I had never gone to public school. David had, you know, gone to different public schools and stuff during his career. But then we met at Rexford, the private high school in, well, in Beverly Hills. You know, that's really when David and I kind of hooked up and, you know, became friends. And and also, you know, we're both, you know, 16, 17, you know, and our lives are changing. And of course, you know, girls and the the whole nother thing is opening up for us. And, And so that's, you know, really how, you know, how we met. I had forgotten about it. As a matter of fact, I just looked it up. But I am one one month to the day older than David. I was born March 12th, 1950, and David was born April 12th. I, you know, I'm a Pisces, he's an Aries. It, and it says a lot, I think, about us, you know, how, how we just, we literally grew up. And then actually right at that same time, um, David and, and I kind of had a mutual friend, Salminio. 
you know, Sal was old, obviously older than David and I, um, very talented man, uh, very complicated person. I think Sal Minio taught David how to play the drum. Because he did give him his drum kit from the Gene Krupa story. I think Sal taught David how to play the drum. But, uh, you know, we would find ourselves, David and I, meeting, you know, at, at, at a, a concert or um, on the Sunset Strip or, or something like that, you know, going to, uh, to see someone that, uh, like, who's this, this crazy new person? I hear he's going to be at the Whiskey A Go-Go and his name is Alice Cooper. Who is this person? You know, and so, well, let's go check it out. And just, I can remember, you know, us, it was, you know, Sal and David and, you know, myself and Pete, a couple other in the entourage, as it were. You know, and then this guy, Alice Cooper, comes out on stage with a boa constrictor wrapped around his neck. And we're going, what? This ain't the Beatles, you know? So it, it was different. And, okay, I, I have to tell you this. You know, of course, you know, it was the 60s and, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all the fun stuff. And, you know, and we smoked pot and all that kind of. Well, I got some of my best pot from David. So, yeah, David, <laughs> in high school, David was, you know, he was, yeah, he was one of my go-to guys, you know, if it's some good pot. <laughs> of course, now, you know, it, everything's changed. I mean, here, in, you know, it's legal and blah, blah, blah. But uh, so it, it didn't destroy our lives. Thank God, like, you know, a lot of other drugs, you know. And, and so it was the, the late 60s was really um 68 69 i saw i i made changes i left hollywood and and so then i didn't see david for many 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 years yeah. and it was with well it, he was doing fx laurie my soon to be wife at the time i said you know god i haven't seen david in a long long time and i was going to be in in las vegas um for some event some comic con or something like that and I said, well, well, we're going to Vegas. Why don't we try to get in touch with David? I'd love to go see his show. So Lori contacts David and she got right through to him. And now, you know, we had not spoken in years. And she said, hi, David, this is, you know, Lori Jacobson, um, John Provost, you know, my boyfriend, and um, we're going to be in Vegas. And the first thing David said to her was, is John okay? Um, okay so it's, it's okay john um i was okay you know and i just wanted to see david and he was great and um you know we <clears throat> we had you know front rows seats in in the you know, auditorium and uh, at the casino and afterwards he invited us backstage and we talked and stuff and um you know, I knew David had struggled. And, um, you know, he was asking me if I was okay. And uh, um, I had had issues um, with alcohol. And luckily those were behind me. Um, but I saw David was really struggling. And um, 
you know, it was, it was very troubling. Um, but, you know, you can't help people if they don't want to be helped. And uh, I knew, and, and um, going back, back to Rexford, back to high school, David, you know, and his father um, had a tough time. But he was so proud of his father. And I can remember, I'm a car guy. And uh, even back then, and David was too, I guess. And he told me one day at school, he said, wow, John, my dad just got this beautiful, brand new Rolls, convertible Rolls Royce Corniche. And he says, John, it's got an electronic transmission. Wow, what is this, you know? And he was just so, you know, proud of his father, but it was very sad because he didn't get that back. So, um, you know, I had a different relationship with my parents and it was very sad. And unfortunately, I, he wasn't really open about it a lot. I think he kept it inside. When you're hurting so deeply as David was because of that hole that his father had left in his heart. You know, I, I don't know what that would have been like. We all have that skeleton. We have that thing back there, you know. And I'm, that was David's, I'm sure. I'm sure. When uh, we saw the, the documentary, you know, David's The Last Session. Wow. I mean, if you think I'm emotional now, oh boy. It took a it was, lot to sit there and absorb. It did. It, and, you know, like, I, as, as I said, you know, um, I had issues with alcohol for a long time. And um, that could have been me. Um, it could have been anybody. Mm. It is anybody. It's every person. It's, it's very sad things, you know, things that can happen. Um, but... You know, like you said, it was one of the hardest things I had to watch, but I understood it. But yet, you know, I felt so, so devastated. Oh, the, he had not heard from me in 30 years. First question, first, you know, was, is John okay? Does he need help? What can I do? Does he need some money? Seriously, those were the words that came out of David's mouth. Yeah. You know, when I knew he was really starting to struggle towards the end, that's, you know, that's when it killed me and did reach out, but it didn't go anywhere. You'd reached out to him to offer your assistance. Sure. Your help. As he did, as he did to me. Yeah. You know, and but like when I, when I, when I made that, that phone call, you know, to go see him, it was just because I wanted to see him. I, I wasn't, I didn't need anything, but his friendship, maybe, you know, that, that camaraderie. Um, but when I saw what, what, he, what was happening, and like I said, I had been there, and I know, I know what it is. You know, if you, nobody can make you do anything. Nobody can make you stop. Nobody can, it has to be you. It has to come from here and you to do it. And unfortunately, I don't think David ever made, made it there. You know, he knew people cared. I knew people cared. but. It's me. It's 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 our the individual's decision, and sometimes you can't make that decision. And and I just like I said when when we watched the last session, it was like I could see it. I just I I knew I felt it. I knew I knew the horror. I knew the pain. 
that he was going through, you know. What caused you to have such a severe addiction to alcohol? <sighs> Who knows? You know, it's just some people are predisposed. I know, I, I do believe that there's a genetic factor involved. Um, my parents, my mother never finished a glass of wine. My father, I never saw him have more than one drink ever. Um, so I don't know where that is. You know, David's father obviously had issues with alcohol. Um, maybe, maybe it came from there. Maybe it, maybe it was the hurt, that hole that David was trying to fill that he could never fill. And maybe that was the same with me. You know, there were things, sure. And sometimes it just gets away from you. And it's like once you've let that horse out of the gate, sometimes you can't bring him back. At until... your very worst, what was your alcohol consumption on a daily basis? Oh, I don't know. I don't think it really, really matters as to how much it's, it's what it, it's the importance it has in your life. It takes precedence over other things. Maybe, maybe not consuming it at the time, but it's there telling you, you know, what to do and where to go. And um, I functioned very well before it gets to the point where you can't function anymore. And um, a lot of people reach that point quicker in their alcoholic careers than other people do. I'm a little guy, you know, 120, 15 pounds. When I was in college and stuff, I could take a, a, a football linebacker that weighed 250 pounds and he'd be on the floor before I was. You know, I mean, it was just the way my body dealt with it. You know, I think David just is kind of the same way because, you know, he didn't, you know, a lot of people, they be, become very gross and overweight and blah, 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 all these things. Not with David, not with, you know, I, it, those things didn't happen. And I think also when those things aren't happening to you physically that people can see, it just kind of says, well, why not then? You know, heck, I'm, quote, a functioning alcoholic. Well, there's a lot of people out there that are functioning alcoholics. Is it good? No. And it'll eventually, uh, unless it's dealt with, it'll eventually lead to, uh, you know, not good things in your life for you and for people around you and your loved one. And, you know, that's the thing. But it is very insidious. Any addiction. And I, and it's any, I don't care what it is. It could, TV addiction, sex addiction, eating drugs, an addiction is an addiction, period, you know, and so that's what you have to deal with. And then if you add the physical components to it, you know, it's more difficult. So it was just very, very sad. And like I said, you know, I, I reached out, but David was not ready for that. He couldn't accept that. And I'm sure many, 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 many people had reached out. You know, you may not see them out there, but you, through the grapevine, you know, stuff's going on, you hear, and, you know, once you've been there, you can see the signs, the telltale things. And there were a couple times when like, hey, I'm here, David. But like, just, you know, there were times when I was the same. I would not pick up that phone. I would not ask. I would not, you know, that's, that's part of it. How did David help you with your issues? Wow. I think just, it's, it's sad, but when you see what happened 
it just reinf- it's a reinforcement, you know, for yourself that, you know, yes, this is what it can do. This is what it can do. And I'll tell you, you know, when we watched the last session, I mean, that was it. That was the one. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God. I said, David, why? You know, but I understand. And that's that's the crazy part. That's the part that really hurts, you know, because you're helpless. You are helpless for them unless they want the help. All the, all, all anybody has to do is, is just open the door and say, hey, you know, can I have help me? I need something or whatever, you know, but that's very hard to do for a lot. Of, it's like that telephone is very hard to pick up sometimes, you know, if you, if you just can't do it. What was the but, turning point for you? Finally, the realization that you have to do it for yourself. Can't do it for anybody else. Can't do it for a spouse. Can't do it for a child. Can't do it for a loved one. Can't do it for a parent. Um, you have to do it for yourself. That may sound selfish, but why not? Because you are affecting everyone around you. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people can say, well, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's part of the whole thing. Well, no, it isn't, you know? So... You don't have to do those things. I mean, I can, I can remember going, seeing The Doors once way back in the day in, in you know, 67 or something. And Jim Morrison coming out on stage in a long sleeve shirt, did one song, left the stage, band does an instrumental. He comes back on stage, left sleeve is rolled up and there's a trickle of blood. And this was the first time I saw them live. And I'm going... Well, I knew about, but are you kidding me? You know, so it was there, but, you know, thank God <laughs> a lot of us didn't go that route, but it could have happened. It could have. And that's what I said when that time in LA, you know, the late, the late sixties things started to get really dark, you know, 68 and was, be- you know, those, the early, well, not the early sixties, 67, 68 were beautiful, were incredible, but 69, 70, things started getting a little, little dirty. What did you think of the show, the VFX? Oh, loved it. Oh, we thought it was great. I thought he did a great job. Great job. Boy, that, you know, that, the, the pressure to do a show like that is incredible. And I did not know what to expect. I, I kind of went there with, you know, now, well, let's see what this is really all about. And I was blown away, just yeah. blown away by the professionalism. Well, you know, but and then again, that's something that goes hand in hand with the industry, with, with what we, you know, the show must go on. You know, you're a trooper, you know. Yeah, you don't feel like it, but, you, you know, it's that's part of it. That's part of how we grew up. And I'm sure, you know, Lori can watch an old episode and she'll go, God, you look so tired. You can look at old episodes of the Parches family and look at and look how tired, you know, but when you're doing it, you're not. Yeah. You know, he's up to, he's dancing, he's doing his thing, he's singing. Right. So yeah, it takes a toll. It takes its toll. With hindsight, do you wish that you had kept in touch more over the years yeah I don't know you know hindsight's it's nice to think about but I don't know I think you beat yourself up when you start thinking about that because it's gone can you remember the first day you met at school well you know like I said we had known each other we had met each other before and it was just like well 
and the school, Rexford, the, 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 high, the private high school that we went to, um, you know, there were people, Dino Martin Jr. and, you know, I mean, Desi Arnaz and, you know, and I mean, just, you know, Henry Mancini's kids. And I mean, just, you know, so it, it wasn't like, oh, wow, it's David Cassidy. It was like, well, hey, David, yeah, you come into my school. You know, it was because, like I said, you know, we, we knew each other. We were, we were all part of the, the same fraternity. We may not have seen each other for 10, 20, 30 years, but when we did, it was as if we'd seen each other last week. You know, that, that, that was the community that we grew up in. Most of us have stayed. And well, if David was here, he would still be within this community and still being David. We were doing photo shoots for Tiger Beat and, and oh, you know, and Teen Magazine and all those fun things. And, and, you know, then when we would try, I mean, I would sometimes when I was, you know, 17, 18, you know, going out and going to concerts and clubs, try to disguise myself a little bit because you wanted to blend in with the crowd. You didn't want people to say, oh, look, there's Timmy from last year, John, whatever. Well, David was even more recognizable because, you know, he was current at the time. I was too. I was doing movies and things, but, you know, not as David was. So he was even more recognizable. And a lot of times, you know, we didn't want to be recognized when we went out. You know, we would try to do things like just regular kids, you know, teenagers, you know, young adults would do. Sometimes we could pull it off. Sometimes we couldn't. <laughs> it just it just depended. And it depended, you know, where you were and who you were with. Did you spend time at each other's homes? No, not a lot. Parents were there. Who wants that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, he came once or yeah. twice, but not not to hang out like that. Any amusing anecdotes that you could share of things that you did together? There was this photographer. Um, he worked for all the teen magazine, and his name was Bob Robert Custer. And he was a character. He loved David. He loved me. And I don't know why this came in, why I thought of this, but he wore, he didn't have any teeth. So he wore complete, like, set of, you know, dentures and stuff. And it turned out that um, Davy Jones, I mean, we're all in the same time frame here, okay? You know, the monkeys, you know, the partridges and the blah, blah, blah. And um, Bob Custers, like I said, he worked for all the, all the teen magazines. So he was shooting all of it. One day, David and I were, were at his little studio in, in North Hollywood, and he had teeth. Well, whoa, you never had teeth. What's going on? And he goes, oh, yeah, Davy Jones bought me some teeth. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the crazy kind of stuff, you know, you hear. And I mean, just as off to a side, Davy Jones was like David Cassidy, just a, a wonderful person giving, you know, it. I don't know, maybe it's like, a, you know, you hear all the crummy stories about people in show business or Hollywood, all their, you know, I, I think most of the people are pretty good or maybe from our time. I don't know yeah. I shouldn't say that. I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, the, you know, the, the Kanye Wests hadn't arrived yet. <laughs> we had to deal with you know, Alice Cooper. <laughs> I don't know. It was a, it was a, a really crazy time. You know, of course, you know, David, you know, with the singing and the music, everybody, I, they, I had an appointment at Capitol Records, 
that was was not my forte at all. <laughs> and I don't dance either, so <laughs> not good, not good. Jay North, Dennis the Menace, he cut an album. They had everybody cutting albums at that time. You know, the next teen throb. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, I'm not a very good musician. It's just, <laughs> it, you know, a couple, a couple interviews with the guys like at Capitol Records and the different places, they said, mm, I think you can just stick to acting. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll leave all that to, to David and the people that have that kind of talent also. Yeah. I had a couple um, buddies that, uh, you know, I grew up with that were not in show business. We tried during this whole time of everybody wanted to be a rock star. You know, once the Beatles came on, we said, oh boy, we can all do this and have all the girls. Uh, um, <laughs> didn't work for all of us, but um, I, yeah, I had a little, you know, me, I played the bass and I had a friend and, but we were terrible. So everybody had a, their own little garage band. We all wanted to be like the Beatles. Were you a fan of David's music? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, I did when we were, you know, the Partridge and stuff. I think I kind of moved a little further off, though, you know, more in the David was still putting albums out, you know, when the Stones and everybody, all that stuff was happening. And I was kind of like, OK, I'm, I'm going over here, I think. He understood. When David's star started to shine and he was landing the roles in FBI, Ironside, what was your reaction to that? Oh, I thought it was great. See, I I left, I wrote my own pink slip in Hollywood. When I turned 18, I had just finished a movie with Kurt Russell for Disney called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. Um, my parents, when I turned 18, they were letting me buy my first car. And I said, you know, wow, I'm 18. I've been working 15 years. I think I'm gonna take a break. Yeah. And that's when I left, I left Hollywood. I moved, I moved uh, to Northern California to go to college. And, um, I could have stayed in, in LA and, you know, continued to work. I was starting to do a lot of movies, but it was just a time. Uh, it was, things were starting to get dark. Um, and hold uh, the music, uh, the Sunset Strip, and all of that was not fun anymore. It was it was getting really dark, and heavy drugs were coming in. Mm. And it was, I saw what was happening, and I said, you know, I think if I stay here and stick around, uh, I might get hung up in this stuff. So time to time to move on, and so I did. And so that's when I left. But where David, you know, he stayed. He stayed in the industry, and so he continued to work. And I thought that was great. And then, you know, after um, a 20-year hiatus on my part, I started working again. And just now I've done my, I, my first robot. I just got a job. I'm, I'm the voice of a new robot in a, a, a new science fiction movie that's coming out called Colonials. And I'm the voice of Spark the Robot. So, you know, it's, it's great. It, it just, it never goes on. And if David was still here with us, you know, he'd still be singing and doing stuff and giving us all, you know, that pleasure, but we can still listen to his music and, and watch, you know, watch him in, in his reruns and, and I, and think the good thought. Did you worry about him when you saw him start to become a name for himself as an actor? And then when the Partridge family exploded. Oh, oh yes. No, it was, you know, David, I mean, Dave became the number one, you know, it was amazing. Who knew, 
You know, we, we, we didn't have a clue how all of these things were progressing and they were happening so fast. And, you know, the industry was fairly young, but just, you know, to see him go on, I didn't in the time from, you know, the, let's say early seventies until the late nineties, you know, I, I really left the industry. So I was, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to what was going on. I was in Northern California. Had I was in another industry, and I was, you know, making babies and raising family and all of that kind of thing. So, you've obviously got a great deal of compassion for other people yourself. You say how much David cared. The people who you were around, like Salminio, another hugely talented actor, whose mm -hmm. life, as we know, was desperately cut short. Being around those people, did that make you more aware of the, the dangers that the entertainment industry presented? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I, you know, I started the business very young. I was not quite three when I first started my first movie. So I literally grew up on a soundstage. And, you know, yeah, and, and as I said earlier, my parents were not show business people at all. So this was new to, to our, our whole family unit. As growing up in it, I was aware, I saw things, and I became very astute at picking out bad people when I was young. There were times when photographers would want, I can remember one time, I was eight or nine, a photographer had come to the home, and he they're taking photos, and I had just done a movie for RKO in Japan. It was the first American movie filmed in Japan, 1956. So I, this was after the movie, so I was seven. And so the photographer's at the home. He's saying, he said, oh, can I get a picture of John bathing? My mom said, oh, oh, yeah, you know, why not? And he's in the bathtub. And I, I just, I can remember at seven years of age saying only if they're bubbles. Because if there was bubble bath, I knew he couldn't see anything. You know, and my mom didn't tell me this. I knew it because I saw stuff. So, and David started in the business young. So it's, you know, we, I think we, he, David was smart. Oh, come on. David was a smart kid. And he was streetwise. I was streetwise. Um, a lot of kids weren't. And those are the kids that got in trouble. I think that's it. You know, David, we were streetwise. We knew, we saw stuff. So we could protect ourselves. Um, when we started hanging out with older people like Sal, um, you know, there were things that came up that were not good. Okay. But I think we were both strong enough that we saw that. We, we, we saw that stuff. I think that helped us a lot, saved us a lot. But still, you know. You studied psychology at university. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to find out what's going on in here. Yeah. You know, major in psychology and minored in special ed, you know, how crazy. And then ended up in real estate. And I did that because I wanted to know. I wanted to find out what, you know, what this, because I knew my childhood was not normal. <laughs> David's childhood was not normal. If somebody's dad was Dean Martin, that was, you did not have a normal childhood. I mean, it's just the way it is, you know, come on people. That's right. It's the same as if, you know, your dad's the chief of police. Your is not a same childhood as that other kid down the block. David was strong. and It was certainly evident during the days of the Partridge family, the manipulation of his image 
Oh, sure. Uh, and you once, but you described the main problem with being a child star was not having an identity other mm -hmm. than the character. That sure. You everywhere, you know, everywhere we went, I was Timmy. David was the partridge. You know, I mean, this is what you were. This is, this is how you were perceived by the public. Yes. When I, and I know this had to have happened to David, but when I was younger and still, and Lassie was on every Sunday night, okay, brand new. Well, on that a Saturday, me and my two buddies that weren't in the business would want to go to a matinee. Like any other kid at 12 years old or 10 years old, we would go to the local theater. And of course, the other kid, well, it's some Disney movie. And of course, the other little kids there, they're all, oh, look, it's Timmy from last. And then some of them would go, well, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. What does that mean to a little kid? Why, why can't I be here, but you can be here? Oh, because I'm supposed to be on TV. I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, you're going to go home tomorrow night at seven o'clock on, on Sunday night and watch me on TV. But now I'm right here with you and we're watching a Disney movie. Yeah. And I was like, well, what, you know, leave, leave me alone. And it's just, it's not the way it is. It does, you know, it, it adds up after a while. When I went away to college, it was the first time I went to public school. I let my, of course, it was 1970. I had a ponytail. I let my hair grow. I had some facial hair. People would come up to me and say, John Prov, that name, oh, were you the kid on Lassie? And I'd say, no, people think that that it's they're confused. No, no, it's not me. It's some, yeah, it's the different, whatever. It didn't work. It worked for a short time. And then, you know what? I finally said, wait a minute. They're not coming up and telling you, God, we hated that show. They're saying, wow, that's very cool. So then I embraced it. You know, you had, it's that anonymity. We wanted just to blend in. And everybody, David did, you know, we all did. We all did at some point wanted just to like, oh, take the celebrity stuff away from me. Just let me be a kid or let me be a young adult or let me be an adult. This was probably 80, 1980-ish, um, graduated school, blah, blah, not doing much. Um, decided to go and look for a real job. And, you know, some good stuff, you know, suit, go in to meet the head guy and, Okay, going over the resume. Oh, yeah, I graduated, blah, blah, blah. Wait, John, John, wait, John, wait a minute. Aren't you that kid that was on Lassie? And I go, yeah, that was a few years ago. He goes, well, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, I need a job. We didn't get paid millions of dollars back then. I haven't gotten a residual check in over 45 years. It's not what you think. Well, that kind of rejection is when you're a, a, you know, a young adult starting a family and somebody's going, well, you don't need a job. Yes, I do. You know, so that's just a whole nother side of the story. And maybe that, that maybe that's you go home and you pick up the bottle. You know, you must have <laughs> seen many times where David said he felt he was losing his identity because everybody thought he was Keith Partridge. Exactly. And that can do a heck of a lot of damage to someone, especially when you're young. You know, the older, it's a different story, you know. But, yeah, when you're young and you're still trying to find yourself and people are telling you, well, no, you're not you, you're that. And I think also because he looked so very young. Both of us. Oh, yeah. You get you know, typecast, I mean, don't you? You know, it's funny because that really didn't happen to me. 
it happened. Yeah, it happened to a lot of other kids, but for some reason it didn't. And I could, and that's why I could have stayed. I could have stayed down in LA and I could have just started doing a lot of movies and episodic television, you know, stuff like that. No, it's, it's crazy. I was, I really wasn't, I was turning down parts that had nothing to do with, you know, Timmy or anything like that. Those experiences that you had, is that why you became involved in the foundation, a minor consideration? That, well, okay, two things. When we were filming Lassie, we filmed nine months out of the year. We, well, we did 30, 35, 37 half hour episodes a year. Now they do 10. So it was a different ball game. But one month out of that, we were on hiatus. We were on hiatus for three months. One month on hiatus, Lassie and I would travel the country, going to all the big markets, New York, Chicago, Dallas, wherever. Go to the, you know, back then we had three networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and we would go and promote the show. Well, Red Weatherwax, the owner of Lassie, he would say, if there's a children's hospital in any of those cities that we're going to, Timmy and Lassie are going to the hospital and see the kid. Mind you, no service dogs. Only dogs were uh, guide dogs for the blind. Um, they didn't let dogs in the hospital. They didn't let kids in the hospital. They would let Timmy and Lassie in. So I'm 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm going into hospitals. Seeing children with polio, seeing children with that had been in a horrible accident, car accident, or been burned in a home fire, and and like kids with polio, you didn't see those kids. Kids were hidden back then. If they had some kind of a, an abnormality, they were hidden. Um, but I saw those kids, and I saw what when I'm little, I they was my age, and I saw what it would do when Lassie and I walked into that room. They would go somewhere else. They would forget their pain. And so later on, that led to my involvement with Canine Companions for Independence, which service dogs to people that have every other disability other than blindness, um, 100% free of charge. I was on the Board of Governors for 25 years, non-paying job, you know, and now I think service dogs from when they're bred to deliver to the person free, it's like $60,000 per dog. Doesn't cost the person a nickel. You know, the minor consideration thing, boy, because I was on board the very, very, very first conference that we had with Screen Actors Guild, Paul Peterson, who's, you know, started it, set this up because there were no laws for the children. You know, they were little two-year, I mean, two-day-old infants were, you know, no, you don't do that. Um, so anyway, at our first conference, they had a list <clears throat> of regulations for children under, you know, 16 was one page for animals, including spiders, 15 pages of regulations. And I stood up and I unfoiled 15 pages of regulations. Yeah, what, is there, do we see a problem here? So it all, it all boils down to Lassie really does you know it really really does that's how i got involved in all of that and of course yeah it and it had a lot to do i saw other kids in the business you know that were abused you know kids my age all we can do is try to do good and i know david was right there and i personally i felt it did that all that stunt your your growth into adulthood um no it, it made me more aware of what's what's going on today you know and and mm. 
you know, things have always gone on, you know, with children and whatever, and adults too. It helped, but, you know, and possibly this whole uh, identity thing and that, which I don't know anybody that, especially if you, if you started in the business as a child, uh, I don't think there's one adult actor that started out as a child that cannot, that would, that said, you know, no, no, it didn't affect my adulthood. Forget it. It had to. It had to. You, then the other side of that coin is you can turn all of that. You can turn anything into positiveness. You know, you can change. You can you can work with that. You can take an ugly chunk of clay and make it a beautiful something. And then you can help others. But isn't that what life's about? Even if you're born with a silver spoon, it, it, it's not all the answers. You do have Lifetime Achievement Awards and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yes, that was, yeah, I got my star on 1984. And what's amazing about that is back then they used to, when they would give a star, they would give more than one at, at the same time. Now they just do one. Easier, like, you know, once a month they'd give five stars instead of, okay, every week do a star. Yes. So long story short, can you see this? Oh, this is. That's nice. The, the Beatles. Beatles. It's, it's, yes, it's a, yeah. a placemat here. Anyway, um, the Beatles got their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame the same day I did. Hey. Yeah, there you go. It was meant to be. There you go. There <laughs> let you it go. let it be. Yeah. There. <laughs> did he write uh, something for, for your autobiography? Yeah, he wrote a bunch of stuff. Just, you know, different. Let me because we he talk, Yeah, he talks about. Because while you're looking, your wife wrote, wrote a book about um, TV dinners. Yes. The kids' stars. What was your favorite? Oh, well, I put in two as an old family recipe, an old pot roast recipe. Then another one is a um, uh, hors d'oeuvres, this little shrimp, curried shrimp puffs. But anyway, here's, what, here's one thing. David is talking about Salminio. He said, Sal had done a movie with my stepfather. He was very good friends with my parents, and he and I became friends as well. I found him to be one of the finest people I've ever known. He was very caring, a wonderful person, someone who made an effort to try and support people who were creative and talented. When I became successful, I would call him and talk to him because he had gone through it himself. When I was in London, he let me and a girlfriend have his apartment for three days during the madness. No hotels would take me because of all the fans. I thought I was just a blue chip person. So there's, yeah, a few quotes and stuff throughout the book. Could I ask you where you were when you heard about his passing? Here, in, in, at home. Yeah, and your feelings that day? What a loss, what a tragedy, you know didn't have to happen. That's, that's the sad part. You know, I mean, <clears throat> some things you have no choice or <clears throat> well, can't say he really had a choice either. So that's hard, but yeah, no, it was just such a terrible loss. And like I said, when we met him, you know, he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was great. That's okay. It, it, it is what it is. Mm. Um, it's just tragedy because, you know, he was such a, a talented man. And such a grateful, such a good man. He yeah. had been there for you, hadn't he? Yes, yes. And that's, you know, and that, that's what I mean. And, and I mean, oh boy, I mean, we could have been, you know, cousins. I mean, we were, we were both short guys, you know. I mean, I think I, 
I, I still weigh the same I weighed when I was in high school. And, you know, I, I definitely haven't grown. I might have, you know, shrunk an inch or something. But, um, but you know, gosh, I could, I wish David was here now. We could have some fun. We could have some laughs and he could sing and, yeah. you know. What's your fondest memory of him? Well, he's bringing a smile. Just he had a, a just a really nice, the nice personality, just the genuine. He didn't, he wasn't stuck up. You know, he didn't have that aura around him that a lot of people you had that you might want. Um, maybe I shouldn't approach her. You know, he was just always friendly, open, just a normal kind of guy. After a 30 years of not seeing each other, you know, it's like, it wasn't, oh, John, yeah, was he? It was, he was there, present, you know. What can I, is there something that can I do? You know, just. What do you think his legacy will be? Well, I would think his, his music, you know, his music and, and it's positive, you know, it's just unfortunate it had to end the way it ended. Did you keep in touch and, with anyone else from your old school days? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, a few people on and off. Well, we there was actually, unfortunately, David couldn't go, but we had a reunion a few years back, <clears throat> a Rexford reunion. And because it was such a small, like in our graduating class, it was like eight people. So it was a, you know, like a 10 year graduation party all together. So a lot of people that I had not seen since, you know, like 1968. And I'm sure if David had been around, he would have been there. This is cool. Well, this has been brought back a lot of memories for me. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for being so open. and okay, Yeah. And but, you know, earlier on there when I just oh. <clears throat> started thinking of the loss the loss it just overwhelmed me you know but no, i mean i i didn't mean to open any emotional wounds for you just oh no 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 that's, we, I, that's good no we need that yeah, yeah it's part of life you know? it shows how much you cared for him mm. no for sure and it's just you know when when you see such a needless loss a, a waste of talent like that it's just it's it i know but i i it's a horrible thing. I just saw some, some something on TV and they were, oh, this is a great painting. Yeah. How much is it worth? Oh, it's only worth $5. The painter's not dead yet. You know? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. You, you know how that is, right? Yeah. So we have great memories and that's what it's all about. It's been wonderful speaking with all right. you. All right. All right. Well, I've it's been a pleasure. It. If we make it over there, because if we come over next year, we're going to travel. And like Lori, yeah. she wants to come. She wants to go to Liverpool and do a book signing, if she can, with her new Beatle book. So uh, we'll be in touch. Absolutely. I'd love to see you both. Thank Thank you, you, Louise. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for downloading this podcast and to John for joining me today. You can discover more about him by visiting his website, johnprovost.com. Remember, you can find us on all podcast platforms where you can subscribe. So you will be the first to know when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening, and until we connect again, take care.